And again, if you want to um, join him and his team to Africa in December, I would definitely encourage you to prayerfully consider that. It's a Africa is a different place. Uh, before we go on, did anybody lose a Christmas tree pin set with diamonds and rubies? Anyone? There it is. Uh-huh. No? All right. I've had it in my office only for since Christmas. Sorry. And Kimberly Ann is here with her fiancé who is getting married when? April 15th? Um, I've known Kim. Well, that's Doug's sister. Wait, wait. We, we, we don't know your fiancé's name, though. Jason. Jason, it's nice to meet. I've met you before, but very briefly, and uh, so welcome. I, I've known the Kern family, the Kern children. Well, stand up, Doug, just for a second. I've known Doug long enough where I used to be taller than him. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's awesome. And why everybody's getting married? Is it like a disease now? I didn't mean no. I didn't mean that like that. <laughs> I meant a good disease. <laughs> Let's pray. God, thank you for grace and forgiveness and uh, that I've learned how to eat crow in many different flavors and styles. And, and Lord, I just want to praise you for what you're doing, not only here at our church, but in your church across the world. And how that we, um, that the support of the people here um, can send people to feed 300 kids in, in Haiti, maybe the only meal that they had uh, for an entire week and God, I pray that we would uh, we would see other ways, other places that you're working and join you in that work. Don't just limit us to the things that, um, that we know. But open us up to the bigger reality of where you're working in the world. So I want to thank you for that, for that, for that truth that you are working in the world. God, I pray that you'd speak to us through your word this morning. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. So I hear a buzz over here, and I'm going to shut one of these off. Ta-da! See, I am technologically advanced. So we have been working through this whole idea of Lent, the preparation for Easter. You know, Easter is that thing where we celebrate the whole death and resurrection of Jesus. But, I mean, there's, there's also other things that take place for us during Easter. We have a big meal with our families, and the Easter bunny comes, and he brings eggs, which is something that Ethan and I had a deep discussion about, how the two correlate, and we haven't quite figured that out yet. We'll get back to you on that one. And we, we hide those eggs, and so there's all these fun things around the celebration of Easter. But in the Christian church, in the Christian church, the time of Easter is a very sacred, sacred time. It's something that just resonates deeply within who we are as Jesus followers. I, I, I firmly believe that, that it's the, probably the most important celebration on our Christian calendar. Because without it, really, 
things, things kind of fall apart for us a little bit. If, if Jesus did not die and was not raised again on the third day, he's really just a, you know, just a really good teacher, just a miracle worker, just a prophet. But instead, because of the truth of the resurrection, Jesus is God who chose to come to earth, dwell among his people, dwell among all of his creation, a creation that he created and that he holds together by his power. A creation that he chose to redeem, to take away the sin that has plagued us since the garden, since Adam and Eve. And once and for all, on that morning, when the power of God rolled away that rock, and Christ walked out of that tomb, he has given us eternal life. And that's, there's weight behind that. There's a sacredness behind that that's, that I don't think we fully grasp and fully understand. And so we begin to prepare ourselves during the time of Lent, the weeks leading up to the Easter celebration, and do the interior work of the gospel. And last week we kind of looked at the way of the cross. And we looked at those red letters that Jesus, Jesus spoke in the gospel of Mark, and it talked about picking up your cross and following Christ, denying yourself and following Christ, choosing to lose your life so that you can gain authentic, real life. Those were the words that Jesus spoke. And we live that way. We live the way of the cross. We live, by denying, we live in denying ourselves. We live by choosing to lose our life in response to what Jesus has already done for us. Not to get God to love us, but because of Jesus, we are already loved. And our response to that love is to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross. You have already been forgiven in Christ. You don't have to earn it. You have already received the grace of God. You no longer have to earn it. And so we kind of wrestled with those ideas a little bit last week. The way of the cross. We ended with asking the question, where have we lost our way? Where have we dropped the cross? Where have we looked to the world to, to satisfy our needs and our wants? Tozer would write this in his uh, book, Pursuit of God. God is so vastly wonderful, so utterly and completely delightful that he can, without anything other than himself, meet and overflow the deepest demands of our nature. Where have we lost that truth? And so the lectionary this week continues on. It continues on with, with crosstalk. And we're going to find ourselves in 1 Corinthians this time. And today we're going to read a little. And we're going to chat a little. And we're going to read a little more. And we're going to chat a little more. So let's get into it. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Now, all through the Old Testament, God is pointing to Jesus. He is pointing to the redemption story of what Christ is going to do on the cross. And now through the crucifixion, 
that has already taken place, that plan has come to fruition. God's plan has come to fruition. The gospel is not some new wisdom, some new idea, some new philosophy, some new theology. It has always been God's plan. It's not some way that we're trying to figure out and understand who God is. Because here's the thing. No human being in their right mind or no human being even in their wrong mind could fathom to come up with an idea to crucify the Messiah to redeem the world. That's what Paul is saying here. It doesn't make any sense. Nobody in their right mind would come up with that. And to move beyond the cross for Paul is to move beyond Christ and to miss the gospel altogether. So crucifixion, resurrection, Jesus. This is a turning point in history. This this changes the game. In history, no longer would humanity think they ruled God. No longer would sin be in control of the world. Especially, especially in the context of our relationship to God. Through the cross and through the resurrection of Christ... There's an age that's coming to an end. And what Paul says, there's going to be people that are going to hang on to the old thing. And guess what? It's not going to go well with them there. It's not going to end well. But, but here's the thing. The foolishness for them of the cross is actually the gospel and the power of God For other people. And those other people are those being saved by the cross. Maybe maybe some of you in here know what I'm talking about. That you are being saved by the power of the cross. Because you have believed in Christ. You see, it's about those people who see their very existence and their their sustenance um, in the power of God that has been revealed through Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about there. And Paul continues to build on this whole idea of, of foolishness and the message of the cross and, and, and what God is going to do. Because God's plan was always to what? To destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. He is going to frustrate. And he's using that, that verse there comes out of Isaiah twenty nine fourteen. And it's that whole section talks about, he's, uh, it's warning Israel and it's warning people in Israel that you cannot match wits with God. It is not going to go well for you. Now, maybe some of you might have tried to match wits with God. I have tried to match wits with God. And it always ends the same way, as my son Ethan would say, epic fail. I'm not even sure that's the right term, but it ma- I mean, we never are going to win in that situation. And then Paul is going to continue to push on past that. And he's going to write this to them. Maybe he's not going to write this to them. Yes, he is. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness that was preached to save those who believe. 
Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Paul starts off, he's going to ask some rhetorical questions. Well, where are they? Where are all the smart people? We're all the wise teachers. We're all the people that, that, that have spoken this reason and this intelligence and this, and this wisdom. Especially in light of the foolishness of God. Where have they all gone? These teachers. What God has done is taken their idea of wisdom. Their idea of, of what should happen and, and the way things should play it out. And he has flipped it upside down and made it foolishness. Kind of almost made it a joke. He has taken everything that humanity has thought to be wise and said, yeah, no. Mm -mm." And went flip and has changed it to their foolishness. I mean, on our own, in our own broken, scrambled egg, head, flesh, we, we can't. We can't know God through our own wisdom that's not even a match for who God is. We, we just, we can't know God. Left to ourselves, humanity can't figure it out. Humanity can't save themselves. All that we can really do, the best that we got, left to our own vices, is to create a God in the shape of in light of something that's already been created. It's what Romans chapter 1 talks about. And at best, we can create a God in our own likeness. I thought about that for a minute. I, I would look good as a God. Well, I know these chiseled, chiseled features. And I, I was thinking, what God would I be God of? Like, I don't think I'd be big enough to be God of the world. So maybe like the God of sarcasm. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, people would pray to me for like pithy little... J- jabs you know i mean how cool uh, never mind um so but it's why in our culture today that everybody seems to be spiritual because we're all creating our own gods everybody seems to be spiritual but nobody not no no but not many people have a healthy reverent fear of the lord so many people in our culture today say, I'm spiritual, but not religious. But yet they lack the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's a dangerous place to be. They have this, this philosophy that, well, God, in my definition, he wants me to be happy. And so he doesn't mind if I do this or that or the other thing. I mean, he wants, he wants the best for me. Unfortunately, the best for me is usually the best for me in my own definition of what's the best for me. And so our idols no longer are just made of wood and gold or from apple. Our idols become things of, that was a joke, come on, that was good. Our idols become things of, of our hearts. Things that we create in our own hearts. You know, in Genesis, if you, I love the, the first couple chapters of Genesis because it's just this, this beautiful poem, this beautiful creation poem. And as you read it, God creates all of this, 
this, these blessings for Adam and Eve, all of this stuff. And he blesses them with all the, you know, like everything they want. Their needs are met. They have joy. They have comfort. They have purpose. All of these external things that God has given them in the garden. But see, they've always were meant to remain as things. They always were meant to remain as external to us. They were never meant for us to, to, they were never meant to control us. And they were never meant for us to worship them. And so God has created this beautiful creation with everything that we need. And then he creates Adam and then he creates Eve. And inside of them, he creates this, this special place, like deep inside. Maybe we can call it their heart. Maybe we can call it the center of their soul. Whatever you want to call it, God creates this place that's only for him. And he is the only one to reside in this place. But then, you know, sin comes into the world and it just messes everything up and it fractures all of creation. And all of a sudden, humanity decides to take those things, push God out of the center, put those things into the center and create our very own God. And then we start to worship that God. Our heart has forced out the true God and filled it with something that has been man-made, woman-made, person-made, whatever you want to call it. Now, because of that, the world lives with the lack of peace. I don't mean, I mean biblical peace. I mean that the shalom of God. I mean wholeness and completeness and, and, and passion. We lack that because we have forced God out of the center and filled it with, with stuff. I mean, but how, how is it even possible that we can consider being whole without God in the center of our lives? How is it possible that we can even consider being complete by worshiping something other than the triune God who has created everything? What Paul's getting at here is that a God that's made through human wisdom just is a projection of human brokenness. And that becomes, for whatever reason, this God that we make a, a, source, a source of pride. And then when we find this God and, and we, we project it out there and then we, we end up worshiping it, it's called idolatry. And man, the Bible, if you want to read about idolatry in the Bible, that's a scary thing to get involved with. That's not a good place for us to be. And so when the wise of the world begin to create gods, and let me tell you, we can be considered the wise of the world because how many of us have always figured out that, I got this, I can figure this out. We are the wise of the world. And so when we create those gods, there's one major thing, and there's a lot of things missing, but the one big thing is that God that we create lacks the graciousness the love and the compassion that would extend beyond us to someone who is undeserving of it. Because isn't that who God is? We don't deserve grace, mercy, love of God. He extends it to us. But when we create those gods, we put demands on people. We demand them to behave in a certain way, to think in a certain way, to maybe dress in a certain way, to do certain things. And if they, if they fail to live up to our expectations of what they should be doing because we've created this, this thing in us, then guess what? We cast them aside. Wasn't that the story of the Pharisees in the Bible? 
They created all of these rules that actually had rules to make sure that you followed the rules and they were the ones that were in and everybody else was out because they could not possibly live up to all of the good rules that they were living up to. And we do the same thing in church, which is scary to think about. But Paul wants us to know that there's something, there's something way better. There's something way better. There's actually a wisdom that is wise. There's actually a wisdom based, based in truth. There's actually a wisdom that is rock solid and, and, and built on a firm foundation. And that is the wisdom of God. That is the wisdom of God. And that stands in direct contrast to the wisdom of the world. I'm hungry. The Lord. <laughs> Good thing it was upper dietary track there. I don't know. I just take a few more sips and fill my belly just in case. Wow, oh, that will take the wind right out of one. Say, where am I here? Okay, the Lord is pleased. The Lord is pleased to bring people into a right relationship with himself. And I can imagine, I can imagine him sitting in heaven going... Watch this. This is going to mess with, this is going to snap their rubber band. And he brings the cross. It goes against everything that makes any sense. He brings the cross to bring us into right relationship with him. The foolishness of the cross. And the world goes, what? The disciples go, huh? This is not the way it's supposed to be. It doesn't make sense that a Messiah would be crucified. It went against all reason. It doesn't make sense that a God who we have snubbed, who we have sinned against, who we have walked away from, would actually create a plan that involved his one and only son dying so that we can come back into a right relationship with him. That doesn't make sense in the wisdom of the world's. Salvation never did nor was ever supposed to be something that we could figure out. It was always going to be the foolishness of the cross. It was always going to be God's plan. And then Paul launches into this whole idea that, that the Jewish people, they, they, like, they like the signs. And, and the Greeks who are really anybody who's not Jewish, Gentiles, they, they look for wisdom. And what he's speaking here is really just the foundational or fundamental idolatries of the world's of humanity, we fully believe that a all-wise God and an all-powerful God is the God that we should worship, right? I mean, not too many people are going to argue with that our God should be all-powerful and our God should be all-wise. Now, if you want to argue with that, that's okay. We're pretty open here. You could be wrong. We give you space to be wrong. But for most people, they are not going to argue with that fact. But in saying that, we look at the all-powerful all God, we look at the all-wise God, and, and we, we kind of put this, we look through a lens of saying, he needs to be all-powerful and all-wise in my best interests. 
He needs to be all powerful and all wise so that my life goes well, so that things aren't too bumpy. I can take a few bumps because God is all powerful and all wise and he's going to come in, swoop down and rescue me. And it's all going to smell like roses. He needs to exercise all of his God stuff on my behalf and the wisdom I should be able to understand that wisdom because, well, you know, because it's for me. God is wise for me. God is powerful for me. Last week, remember I said that, that it's sometimes like when I pray to God, it's like he doesn't listen to a rational thought process that I have laid out before him. And I think my life would go much better if he went away. Yes, Dennis, that's what I should be doing. But that's not who God is. And you know, you know how we've fallen into idolatry? Uh, uh, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked. This is how we know we've fallen into the idolatry. We replace the true God with a God who should be doing everything for me. It's not the God of the universe. It's my own personal God. It's my drive-up window. It's my quick order. It's my list that needs to be answered. He's got time. He can throw in a few bones for you. I'm good with that. We know we've fallen into idolatry when we insist that God does things that the way that we believe those things should do. And, 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 and make sense to me. God should make sense to me. And when we start thinking and believing that way, we have created a God who is not at all the true God. What if, just, just think about it for a second, what if? What if, by some twisted fate of a parallel universe on fringe, that God decided to listen to humanity? That God decided to go, they, under, you know, I'm going to use their plan. That works much better than what I've decided. What if God did that? Guess what? The cross would be non-existent. There would, there would be no redemptive history at all. Maybe there would just, I don't know what there would be instead. Because the cross, the cross was not one of a few possibilities that God could have thrown out there. It was the answer, the perfect answer to, to fixing what we have messed up. It was the only answer. It was the best way, the only way. So for the Jews, they, they wanted signs. They, they liked signs. They liked a God who, who did miracles. And rightly so, because that was such a huge part of their national history. I mean, from, from the flood to Abraham and Isaac and the whole, the whole uh, the, the, the goat caught in, by the horns for the, for the um, sacrifice to Moses... To, to mo and the plagues and the Red Sea parting and tapping the rock and the water's coming out and he's got the quail going on and he's got the manna and he got Moses coming down with all the Shekinah on his head and people are like, whoa, you know? And, and so they're used to a God who's a God of miracles. And what they believed is the Messiah is going to come back and he is going to perform mightily on their behalf. Just the way God did it then, 
He was going to come back, the Messiah, and do exactly the same thing. They wanted, they expected the miraculous because that's what their history of God was was like. God was always doing something really, really cool. And so just like in the Gospels and just like us, we create a God that demands a sign. Come on, God, show me. Verify yourself. Show me what you got. Help me believe. Turn the water into wine. Get me that job. Make this person do that. We expect things from God and we create a God who is not God at all. I mean, it would make sense that we can just ask him for it. We're not asking him to raise anybody from the dead, right? We're not asking him to quiet the storm. We're not asking him to walk on water. We're not asking him to part any sea or just... Throw me a bone, God. We begin to create a God that suits our best interest, and that's not who God is at all. See, the problem, I think, for us comes in, we, we, we read this book, right, and we read all this, all this Old Testament stuff. Maybe some, well, you should be reading your Old Testament stuff. I know it's a little dry. I think you should land in numbers this afternoon and really concentrate on that. Um, but we read this book and we see all of the things that God has done in the past, right? And then we go to, and then, and then we think, well, I've got him figured out. I've got, I've, and, and it's almost like the book becomes a stumbling block to us. Because now we think we've got them figured out. God has to operate in this way. Because, because, well, this is the way he should operate. I mean, he's done it in the past. But what's it say in Revelation? I am doing a new thing. Or that's Isaiah. I have no idea where that is, but it's in the Bible. He's, God says, I'm doing a new thing. Something new. The reality of it is he is not held to any of our human systems, our human patterns, our forms, our equations. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. God does not have to uh, follow our personalized equation of if I do this, then God was going to do this. That's not the God that we worship. That's the God that we've built in our heart instead of the God, the triune God, the creator God, the comfortable, neat, things fit together God that we would like him to be. And then wisdom. The Greeks, the Gentiles, they, they, they want wisdom. They looked for it. They valued it. Rationalization, reason. I think we do as a culture... We, we value that too. You know, the Greeks were a very advanced culture back then. And like us, we're a very advanced culture now. We, we have all these amazing things we're doing uh, in, in advancing in, in science and technology. And, and just, just all these things are happening. I mean, some of our young kids don't even know what a record is. Right? I mean... That's, that's just that. Sad, right? Sad. What's that? That is not a Frisbee. Beatles revolver should not be thrown across. The, no, that could be worth money someday on eBay. Where was I? And so we create this God that has to go by our understanding. We create this God that has to go by our reasoning. We create this God that plays by our rules. We want him to play by our definition. 
kind of play in the lines that we draw. And that's not God at all. God has never crawled into the box. And he never will. What Paul is offering, what God has offered, is Christ crucified. The foolishness, the cross, Christ crucified. That makes as much sense as fried ice. Because in the Jewish mindset, Messiah, Messiah was about power and splendor and victory. And in the Jewish mindset, crucifixion was weakness and humiliation and defeat. Those are not two great tastes that go together. That is not your basic Reese's peanut butter cup. That is oil and water. And they just don't mix. And it didn't make sense, the foolishness of the cross. And then when you think about the Greeks and and the Gentiles in their wisdom, it was nothing short of superstitious madness. Literally, it was considered insanity to believe that a Messiah, a rescuer of the world, would be crucified. You were insane to even consider such an idea. So, you know, as I was kind of think through all this, and, and we got the foolishness of the cross, and, and we got God doing his thing, and then, then we got kind of the idolatries of, of we like the signs, and we like, you know, the wisdom and things to make sense. I was thinking, well, you know, if God is God, which he is, and, and humans are human, which, which we are, why wouldn't God just throw us a little something-something? Give us, give us a little bone, right? Come on, God, just throw me, throw me out a little wisdom that could possibly make sense, that could just kind of solidify and clarify everything in my own mind. And then maybe you can sprinkle that with a little cool thing, like a little power thing, a little, little miracle thing that could just like me. I'd be just like, whoa, that's God right there, you know? And then, then I could get it. Then I would understand it. Well, here's the answer to that question, why God would never do that. Because the cross in Christ, the, the crucified Messiah, they are the ultimate expression of the power and the wisdom of God. They are the ultimate expression of the power and the wisdom of God. Only God can be wise in foolishness and powerful in weakness. And from a human perspective, the gospel must always be foolish. From a human perspective, the gospel should have that degree of not making human sense. Because if it starts to make sense and we start to have it all figured out and we start to be able to go, okay, this is reasonable, it no longer It's the gospel. It's a man-made thing, God, that we've created. We try to control the Lord. We try to understand him through our symbols and our creeds and our writings. But he is not going to be controlled. He is not going to be tamed. And so preaching the foolishness of the cross and the weakness of the cross is the power to set People free. The foolishness of the cross is the power to set people free. In, in the death of Christ, God judges us who put him on the cross and then reconciles us back to him. That doesn't make sense. 
in the cross, Jesus took away our sin and disarmed us of any and all power and wisdom that we might think that we had. And the weakness of the cross is scandalous to people who think they got this, who think, I got this figured out. I can get through life. I can make it on my own. I can fix this. It's a scandal to those who believe that you're good enough, that I'm not a bad person. I mean, there's a lot of other people doing a lot worse things out there than I'm actually doing. It's scandalous to those who have made God into something that's manageable and neat and just, and just sits in the confines of, of, of just reason, their own reason and their own wisdom. But to those who recognize their need for mercy, to those who recognize their need for grace, to those who recognize their need for forgiveness, the foolishness of the cross is the best news. It goes beyond good. It's the best news. It is God's ultimate power. It's God's ultimate wisdom. Pour it out for us. And so as we continue our journey through Lent, let's ask some questions that you can work through for the week. Where has God become a thing in your life? Where has God become a thing? How have you forced the true God out of the center and you've made something else other than him your God, your focal point, your place of worship? Where are you relying on your own wisdom? Where are you relying on your own power to walk in this journey and not allowing the free gift of grace, the free gift of mercy through Jesus Christ to fill your life. Cease striving and know that he is God. That's the gospel. Lord, we want to thank you that, that even though we wrestle with you and we try to take the wheel and we try to steer the boat ourselves, you will never stop loving us. You will never give up on us. Your love is all-powerful. Your mercy is just new every morning. Grace is amazing. Lord, help us to understand the foolishness of the cross. And put aside all of the things that we just kind of clog and, and, and get in the way of it. That we would live in that simplicity. Thank you that your foolishness is wiser than any wisdom we can ever come up with. And your weakness is more powerful than anything that we can try to do, get done ourselves. We love you, we praise you, and we continually give ourselves over to you. Amen. Amen.